Welcome to the Sacred Window Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Devlin Eck. Here at the Center for Sacred Window Studies, we explore and expand on conscious postpartum care. We navigate the overlap of caring for others and caring for ourselves. We honor the transitions, not only in giving birth, but in being alive. Welcome to the conversation. And I will never be the same. Hello there. Welcome to the Sacred Window Podcast. I'm Christine Eck. I'm your host, and I'm really happy to be here with another of our Sacred Window Podcast hosts, Roshni Kavadi. Roshni is joining us from Spain. Um, She's been in our community for a number of years now, starting as a student, um, a collaborator. She's a guest instructor. She's our work-study scholarship advisor. She's um, a co-founder of Marigold, which is an organization that she founded with um, a colleague who's also in our community. Um, and they are really exploring um, conscious Ayurvedic ancestral cooking for postpartum and beyond, but also really diving deep into grief and trauma and how that heals. And we decided that creating a conversation specifically about ancestral foods for healing was a really great place to help widen the understanding about this concept that we believe so firmly in. And so Roshni, thank you for being here to have this conversation with me. Yeah. Thank you, Christine. It's um, lovely to be here always to chat with you. I feel like we have the most beautiful, inspiring conversations. So yeah, excited to be here. Thank you. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And, you know, the the way that our team designed our studies in general was really with the understanding that Ayurvedic cooking for postpartum did not mean just food from what we know as India, like that part of the world. Like it really is meant to be focused on the individual and what creates balance for that person. Um, I'd love to just start out this conversation sort of with that opening statement, but also just diving into the understanding of what is ancestral food. Um, Yeah, let's start with that. What, what, how do you describe that? Yeah, I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, they come here because they're interested in Ayurveda because it gives them a frame of reference to think about health in a, you know, much more nuanced, deeper, intuitive way. And I think the conversation sort of stops there where it's like, okay, I'll eat rice, I'll eat mung dal, you know, like you're saying, Um, because a lot of Ayurvedic recipes, because it comes from South Asia, they can be, you know, have like Indian, Pakistani, Nepali, Sri Lankan, Bangladesh, like, you know, the subcontinent, the influences from there. And if you really dig deep, Ayurveda at the heart is about, you know, what really works for your body in the moment, in the season. It's really being connected and having a conversation with the land you're in, the people you're connected to. When we think about, you know, tattoos and tissues, those are not just independent, uh, you know, we're not just born with it ourselves. 
it's influenced by who our parents are, who our grandparents are, our great-grandparents, where they were born, where they lived, what they ate. So for me, Ayurvedic food and ancestral food is almost exactly the same. It's, you know, ancestral first and uh, Ayurvedic at the same time. So no matter what culture you're from, you can eat Ayurvedic food because it adheres to those principles. So I think that's the sort of the first truth I want to get to and like empower people is to like ask yourself, what is ancestral food for me? And it doesn't have to be like, you know, what we think is like, it's just oats and seaweed or kimchi or turmeric um, because they have sustained people for so long because they're, you know, um, traditional foods that are really nourishing and nutritious to the body. But we can go a little, dig a little deeper and ask like, what is ancestral in the sense of like, what gives me comfort? What is nurturing? And, you know, what is like, what is resiliency? And for a lot of people, it's not necessarily like a turmeric golden milk, right? Like that's not a part of many people's ancestral tradition. It's a nice addition to have these days, but it's a great way to get curious about what is in our body, in our bones, what is that deep, resilient inner strength and a note of self-sufficiency too, that, you know, we can just look within our backyard and gather and listen to the plants that we have here. And I think that's, that's a conversation I'm really curious about because I'm interested in that like sense of minimalism and quietness with my own health these days. Because it seems like when you, you know, look online or go to the grocery store, you know, the whole world is available um, in a way to consume. But to me, I've noticed a lot of it is just noise. But when I get really clear and just listen, listen, listen and practice and work with different foods or plants, there's just some that resonate so deeply. So it's a way to really hone your intuition um, and listen to what your body's craving you know, we can talk a little bit more about craving, but that's what I would ask myself and people too, is like, what are you really craving? And, you know, start the conversation there. I'm so glad you went into that last part further, because that's exactly what I was feeling as I was listening to you describe, you know, what ancestral food, like an Ayurvedic food, how they're really the same thing, is that it's this invitation to get really quiet and get really close with ourself, really intentional about, you know, my body has all the wisdom in it that I need in order to stay healthy, but there is so much noise. There is so much, um, almost like this sort of, um, just false creation around us that draws us away from the actual real situation, which is the beautiful person that we are inside and what our body actually needs. So it's to me like an opening of a whole new world of existence when we can separate what we think we should be doing to what we actually need inside. And so how like beautifully direct to get right down to the food that we're eating each day as a 
vessel for us to actually access that. Yeah. And when I say craving, people think, oh, you mean like chocolate cake or, you know, chips or fried foods. And I say, like, we can crave it all. Like, everything is craveable. Um, but it's really, I think what you're deeply craving is you're craving comfort, you're craving memory, you're craving connection, you're craving warmth. Those are really, you know, what underpins everything we eat. Of course, we eat because, you know, we have to sustain ourselves. But it's very limiting, I think, to think about, especially in the postpartum period, to think of, okay, I need food to fuel myself during this period. You know, you have a new life. You're curating their taste in a way for the rest of their life. You're laying the foundation for their health, you know, what they will crave, how they will receive food, how they will digest, what smells seem appetizing to them. So you're molding a whole new human life through this like palette of food and also how we nurture, how we talk about nourishment and food. So all these codes, I feel, are, you know, being encoded in this moment. And what a missed opportunity if we, you know, like don't think about those elements of what is the emotion underneath it? Because eating is so emotional. It's, I think, more emotional than anything else. We may not be able to verbalize it or, you know, specify what it is, but that's at the heart of it. So I find that, you know, that's a great way to start, you know, practicing how we interact with our little ones. Like, how do we teach them self-love, kindness, compassion, but it can all be done through the language of food and feeding. I love that so much. I think that um, in so many ways, the the ways that we're able to grow as an individual and get more um, intentional about how we do everything, like because we know we're setting, we're like and doing that encoding, like you mentioned, we're we're like extending and like moving forward the aspects of wellness that we want our children and the next generation to experience. So I think it's really a very powerful um, motivating force to, to get really clear about what our personal ancestral path to wellness is. Um, one thing that I think can become a barrier for a lot of people, especially as we live in a Western world that's pretty devoid oftentimes of tradition, um, you know, devoid of, you know, a clear understanding of who we are in relation to our generations that came before us and our family lines. So, you know, there isn't a lot for a lot of people, there just isn't an understanding of ancestry. It's kind of just this, you know, blank space in, in um, what we know of our family history and, and where our sort of cells have developed from. And I'm curious, you know, we've talked about this before, but for this conversation here, yeah, what are some ways that we can actually reconnect with that ancestral line? Because I think that in itself is so healing there cre it creates this like sense of grounding, this sense of um, continuity, this sense of 
knowing ourselves, which is so powerful and opens a lot of doors to growing as individuals on so many levels. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I've, um, Rebecca, my co-founder and I, we teach, you know, um, our signature course, which is Ancestral Kitchen. It's a ancestrally rooted Ayurveda inspired cooking course training for birth workers, herbalists, chefs, you know, anyone interested in postpartum cooking. And we have a lot of students who first thing they say is like, I come from no culture. And a lot of people who say that, you know, identify um, maybe like they have mostly like European ancestry. And I think that's what you're referring to is the sense of like, I come from nothing. You know, there's this blankness. But even in that blankness, there there is culture. Even maybe you may not be connected to, you know, it's hard to imagine like, oh, what was, you know, 1800s, like France-like or Germany-like. But I think you can just start asking questions within your family, you know, like great-grandparents, grandparents, like just getting curious, like where like what is my body made up of like just from you know a geographic point of view like where do my people come from you know you can start tracing what foods might they have eaten but if anything luckily a lot of you know I'm here in Europe and I've traveled quite a bit and there's so much documented archival culinary history so I think if anything if you have European ancestry I think you're the best ones to like actually reference like recipes you know classical remedies um, herbalism like all of like this treasure trove of knowledge so you know like Google archival books has all these great incredible recipes there's like old historical studies that you can access but also for a lot of people you know um if we look at you know just in the context of the U.S. you know um it's the land of the indigenous people and a lot of their culinary history and medicine has been taken away as a systemic form you know like systemically by the settlers and the government so again it's getting curious about where you live what plants grow there it's you know even just looking at every family has I think a code of comfort and that could be you know something hearty something you know like a simple broth we all have these like shared you know like if you I I'm very interested in like decoding like I I love like the taxonomy of foods right so even when we teach the foods, people are like, well, like, what do I eat? How do I eat? And then we just look at, okay, let's look at, you know, the philosophy of any kind of tradition. And um, we've, we sort of call it the marigold way, a reference to think about, you know, how you can be from any culture anywhere in the world. But if you apply these five principles, you can create your own personalized, you know, structure for caring for yourself. Like it's your language of care. So we call this the marigold way framework, and it involves warmth, digestion, rejuvenation, pleasure, and ritual. So no matter what culture you're from, think about, you know, what brings warmth. Um, maybe it's something like rosemary, something like ginger, 
you know, just even like warm steams. Uh, a lot of culture have like steaming and warm baths, right? Like that's very, very common anywhere you look, especially like different um, like Eastern European countries and um, just that like it's so universal is like keeping our body warm, be it textiles, be it foods. And if you think about digestion, again, when the digestive fire is so low in the early days, we have simple broths, you know, like things like fennel, dill, fenugreek, just simple broths, like bone broths. Um, Rebecca is Italian and her when she had a baby, her dad, who's Italian-American, he made her a lot of like brodo, like just hearty bone broths. Um, her mom's, you know, I think Welsh um, ancestry. So yeah, like broths are big part of their family. So when they're cooking that, they're not thinking, okay, we're going to make a Welsh Italian postpartum recipe, right? It, it's just like, who doesn't make broth, right? It's so simple and foundational. And same with rejuvenation. It's, like what sustains you, what refuels you. And for a lot of cultures, that's hearty braised meats, right? Like something like a beef stew or an elk stew. Um, you know, you can like feel like your bones just like being rebuilt. Um, maybe for people who come from plant-based cuisines, it's a lot of like beans and lentils with a lot of like well-cooked spices, cooked long and slow. So if you think of like hearth cooking, right, which is the foundation of most home cooking, most home cooked foods is long, slow, a lot of roasted root vegetables so if you think of like that wintry soul comfort food that's rejuven rejuvenative foods and at the center of all of that is pleasure like otherwise why would we eat <laughs> no so even sweet treats come into that so you know if you think of like um things like dates and molasses uh brown sugar soaked um like prunes and syrup if you cook you know like roasted chestnuts there's like a sweetness different spices you know like cinnamon cardamom vanilla bean egg yolks like a, I'm thinking of like a panna cotta you know again a traditional Italian like custard with a lot of egg yolks and cream maybe a little saffron you know you can sort of add whatever speaks to you know your taste so you just with that framework, you can think about, okay, what is pleasure for me? Maybe it's like a chocolate cake, you know, um, maybe for the postpartum, you add a lot of like soak, you know, like slow cooked dried fruit and nuts and seeds and with cacao, like that could be a great, you know, remembrance of like, okay, like my mom baked chocolate cake all the time for celebrations, but maybe if you don't, you know, want to eat cake every day, this is a great way to bring in those flavors and that sense of love and care from a family. Um, and just the ritual of how you eat, how you feed yourself, like how you celebrate, how you grieve. Again, like postpartum is, a, it's almost, you know, just like the birth, we celebrate the birth and we have birth stories, right? It's just as important to have that ritual of, you know, at least six weeks to three months to even a year, if you can, to offer that space to rest, 
to reflect, to think about, you know, what do I wish for this child? And for a lot of people, you know, a postpartum period can also be a period of complicated emotions. It can also be rooted in grief if you've lost a child or if you've had a miscarriage, abortion, any of that. So for, you know, imagine someone feeling like, oh, I can use this period as a ritual to give back to my body, you know, like how liberating is that instead of, you know, we focus so much on the baby, the baby, um, and forget we are the caregivers and we are tending this new human life. And if anything, you know, the attention has to start with us even before we, you know, move to the baby, because if we're not, you know, grounded, restored, rejuvenated, nourished, it's really hard to like sustain a new life and give to them, you know, without giving that to yourself. Oh, it's so true. I think, yeah, what really sticks out to me here is the concept of slowness, which is super hard in this type of world that we live in. Um, and I think that quality in itself can create a lot of discomfort <laughs> in us as we're like, I just want to go fast, but I can't, I have to stay slow. But what happens, you know, in the food aspect of it, when we start to go slow, we start to be able to pick out like individual flavors and notice the sensations and the response in our body when we're like, oh my gosh, this flavor is exactly what it is that my body needs right now. Um, so many times, you know, we're just like, whatever, whatever is going to like fill me up right now, because I'm, you know, just overwhelmed. And that's okay, too. But there's a choice to like, even when it feels like inaccessible, to just take a breath and slow down for one minute. And that one minute can then open up a new experience that might not have been had a connection to our food, a opportunity to like have it expand beyond the food and be an extension of, you know, how we behave towards our family and our babies, how we experience the love and return because we were able to slow down for that one minute. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, in some ways it feels like we're swimming upstream, you know, in this society. Um, and yet we have a human right to be able to heal postpartum and heal at any time. And whether or not we are in, you know, a system of medicine such as Ayurveda, or we are in a modern medical society that healing always begins within, with the choice, with the awareness, and with our food. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I just see so much joy and opportunity for it moving past just the flavors and the resonance on a cellular level into a whole expansive world of healing. And you mentioned, you know, I don't know if you use the word grief, but you acknowledged like, yeah, there's like a whole spectrum of complicated emotions that we experience as humans in general. But if you like really zoom into those weeks postpartum, we feel it all and we feel it all so much 
more intensely because we're in this really vata elevated air and space elevated space and our hearts are just wide open in order for us to bond in order for it's like nature wants it like that however it creates a lot of like possibility for things flooding in in ways that we're going to feel overwhelming at times and it's a transition so I think in all transitions however the circumstance looks for each individual whatever is going on for that person there is a big change and along with that change is some level of grief for what was before and so I'm curious to like really look at how eating ancestral foods and that mindfulness about food can actually attend to our grief and our grieving spaces. Yeah. When we talk about grief, I think it's easy to think of it as, you know, a stream of negative emotions or you're having you know, more tears, it, it, it's easy to just stop there. Um, but if you really start asking, well, what does grief feel like? What does it feel like? Where do you feel it? How does it feel? Where else can you feel it? And I think most people can really relate that it, you feel it deep in your gut. It's it's like, you know, it, it, it hurts so deeply. There is pain. There's numbness. You can't smell food the same way. You're forgetful maybe, you know, there there's just like a dimness to life. Your hunger may be, you know, not as strong. Like things don't taste as good. So if anything grief is not like an emotional state of being in one moment. It's a full-fledged physical, sensorial, sensual, erotic experience. And I use that word erotic very specifically, not in this kind of, um, you know, oh, it's like pornographic or it's like sexual. Uh, grief is not like the antidote to those things, but grief is the most a lot being an experience of being alive but it but it also is the same time when things just feel really dim dark and off uh, you know it's such a dichotomy right to feel like it's so visceral and strong but it also feels like well this is the complete opposite of this like experience of like giving birth right like this most human animal like you know there's very like few moments where it feels like we're in a different liminal space like to give birth like to create human life and then it comes out of you and you know like as a birth worker you marvel at it each single time and so grief to me is that kind of like holds that duality and once you acknowledge that it's such a physical experience and so much of our grief is connected to our senses for Rebecca and I, it just seemed sort of, you know, so seamless and, you know, so obvious. It's like, that's how our ancestors have been surviving, thriving, moving forward every generation, no matter what. It's what they ate, what they passed on, how they celebrated, and literally what they ate to 
essentially cure themselves and I and I use a word cure you know not from like some like disease but like through heartache through life like you need a cure for life and food is one of those offerings right you eat like three four times a day and it holds so much meaning and wonder and a recipe is not just a recipe to me again they're like these like coded sources of like music or song to remind you if you eat this in this way during this season prepared this way like we'll be there for you you'll feel good and I think that's the ancestral promise is they've given us this wealth of knowledge with this promise of like we're not here but you will go on you know, um, and we don't think about food in that way. It's like, okay, like I need to eat because, you know, I have to go to my job or it, we think of it as like as a means to an end. But what if that is the way you live? And, you know, that can be a way to like think about life. So for me, grief, the grief experience is a way to think about, okay, like I'm again, there's a lot of like external things we could do when one is grieving, you know, see you know, go to a therapist, go to a doctor, go to a support group. But it's also one of the most empowering experiences because you're getting curious and asking, well, in this moment, what do I need? Everybody says, like, talk to a friend. You know, I write a lot of grief articles and it's I'm reading some things and it says, like, call a friend, talk to your doctor. And it's like, yes, but they're giving you advice based on what they think and what they know, but it's not really your body, your tongue, your nerves. They're the ones that really, really, really know. And if you can ask yourself, like, what is it that I'm craving? What do I need in this moment? It's transformational. It's so different. A lot of times it could be like, I just I'm craving fat, like something like, you know, really meaty and hearty. And I get those cravings. And I when I just listen to that, I feel so good. And I trust that I'm craving balance at all times. I think there's this fear that if we give into this idea of like, oh, if I listen to my body, then all I'll eat is like only this one thing, you know. And we don't have to demonize food in that way. Like we don't have to say like, oh, like sugar and salt are bad. Fats are bad. You know, you should only eat this. You can exist with food in a way that it offers you balance without kind of having this like negative connotations around foods. Like we should be able to eat everything and feel, you know, at the end of the day, balanced and a sense of vibrance about it. But I think once we get into these like place of, oh, I am bad if I eat this, you know, that's going down this way of like really dehumanizing your own experience and your own self. So for me, yeah, the connection between grief and food is to really offer this very gentle, subtle form of self-care. It's really powerful to acknowledge that what we have to offer ourselves in terms of support, like that is the first line. I think in general, our culture for support is 
the doctor will fix you, or you got to have a therapist, or you got to have like, you got to go here, you got to go do that. But they all seem to skip over that step one, which is what do you need? And whether it's in the postpartum window or whether it's in life, um, it seems like that is a critical step that oftentimes we feel really uncomfortable with. Like we don't know how to listen to that. Like we don't trust ourselves. Yeah, we Uh, don't. What's healing? The danger, the most dangerous thing in the world is a person who trusts themselves and knows themselves. Because then you know what works, what doesn't work. The whole facade of, you know, all of these sort of like mirage or like what what wellness is, what capitalism, all of that falls apart. Like you would see something and be like, I don't need that. That doesn't resonate for my body. I am not desperate to seek that. I don't have to buy this, right? Um, There's a sense of knowing what I need are these things. And those may be like, you know, lentils you buy like from bulk and a few root vegetables that you buy from the farmer's market and you know a few cuts of like meat from your csa market that that does it doesn't have this appearance of you know whatever societal um like elevated um meaning behind it right like you it's not like you can put it on instagram and people are like ooh, like i i feel this like envy no it probably like doesn't look like any of that but you know if you eat that like you will feel so good so in a way you're not performing it's a conversation for you and your body and and i think like what a relief to not strive to perform in every aspect of our lives like we can just eat whatever that is that resonates with our body and not feel like we are forcing ourselves to like you know there's so much um like I don't know like all these diets that come in that like you know that are trending again like the only diet that should be trending is like an ancestral diet what has worked for (laughs) you know millennia for like all of humankind so just if you can step back and realize like oh that's like to sell advertising and like stuff we don't need you could just subscribe out of that and there's so much space like mental space to do other things to create you know to raise it a child like that is that is an art project right that takes so much of your creative energy like what a relief to you know put energy into that than thinking okay how can I do this and how can I buy that and you know buy these smoothie blends and these kinds of herbs and these kinds of medications or I think it just frees up a lot of space and what you talked about simplicity it's simplicity like simple financially simple energetically simple mentally and I think that is dangerous (laughs) and I say that intentionally because I think a lot of systems are built around taking away our agency and our intuition yeah you're absolutely right and yet when enough people begin to consciously simplify and use their own higher self guidance to direct what does my body need what do i need what does my family need right now and starts to 
shift their attention away from like the flashy, you know, bits and pieces that are there to direct us rather than us directing ourselves. Um, I think that's when we see shift on, you know, a societal level where people are waking up more. Um, and I, you know, I'm a big believer in, you know, long-term human evolution into a positive direction. Um, but this, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a dangerous way of thinking. And yet um, we have to do it. I've always felt like if we are able to work with a family and when our time with them is done, we have created a sense of empowerment in them that they know how to listen to themselves, then we have done the best, most important work that we could have done. Um, so I think as an invitation to beginning to access this, because a lot of times I'll listen to things or I'll read things and I get really inspired and then I don't actually know how to begin to experience what it is you know, so like experiencing the healing of ancestral foods when I'm, you know, raising four kids and like running around like an insane person to a million different activities and feeling like this is really like inaccessible to me. Like I can't mm -hmm. or, or, you know, my kids just want to eat the same thing every day. Like their palate is like very narrow. Um, yeah, like what? what's like an easy way of entry into this experience? Simple home cooking. That's really the answer. If anything, you know, you take away from this conversation, the ancestral way of eating is simple home cooked food. Um, the ritual of it, the cooking, the mindfulness of the, the practice of cooking, right? Even if it's assembled, even if you buy a lot of things sort of like pre-made, pre-cooked, that's okay. It's a huge privilege to cook at home. A lot of people can't do that, you know, with kind of, again, we talked about systems, the way they're set up. Um, imagine if everybody had the time and the financial ability to cook at home, right? Again, revolutionary. So, if you are able to, you know, cook at home, involve your, even babies can, you know, hold a carrot, put it on, like, you know, they're visually seeing, right? They're playing with the spices, maybe getting your kids involved in assembling, right? Like learning what vegetables look like, what they smell like, how you hold them, how you, you know, like using their senses to know when something is cooked, what do they like, you know, what are the tastes they enjoy. So cooking together, sitting down, you know, I I think the easiest way to cook a nourishing meal is like we talked about this idea of like rejuvenation and pleasure. If you can bring those two elements, you know, and something that's deeply warming. So again, like, a you know, think of like using your like, big pot like the biggest pot you have you know throw some vegetables throw some onions some garlic aromatics and herbs whatever you have maybe it's like cilantro or parsley or oregano you know something nice and pungent if you have chilies or if you if you don't have you know if you don't cook with chilies that's okay just you know different aromatics like celery parsnips you know any root vegetables and then add in you know something hearty uh that's the basis right like either meat or fish 
lentils, again, whatever is easiest and add some brightness and warmth, you know, citrus, you know, you can add oranges like preserved lemon, cheese, any of that, like give some crunch to it, you know, top it with some nuts or breadcrumbs. So think of the ancestral dish as like, you know, what are you layering? What memories, what feelings do you want to layered? Like, how do you want it to taste in your mouth? Do you want like something soft and custardy? Do you want like that, like kind of, you know, more crunchy, crispy elements? And so you can play around both with like feelings and emotions, but also textures. So, and then, you know, sit down, serve each other, light a candle and, you know, if you want to play music, you know, again, that's part of the ancestral way, right? Every family has like their favorite music. It's so different from home to home. And it doesn't have to be like, oh, we we have German heritage. So we listen to German music. No, <laughs> It's, you know, like whoever, um, like Sweet Caroline, I don't know, like whatever really moves you. So all of that creates this framework this cocoon of nourishment and that is so different from my family like we would um for us easy home-cooked comfort food is like dal which is like lentils with rice and maybe like bopper just to have that crispiness a mango pickle a little bit of yogurt and for a little dessert, maybe we have some like kheer, which is like rice pudding, either with rice or taro or like a jalebi, you know, something that you buy or make at home. So very simple. But with those same elements, uh, I'm curious, like, what would you make for your family that's like rooted in home cooking and warming and nourishing? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I grew up in a house where it was like a very Midwestern, you know, palette. So there was always like the meat, then there was like, you know, likely like some potatoes there. Um, my mom was super into like, you know, the, the plate that had all the different ask like the different food categories on it. So that was always there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I can't get that out of my uh, Cause I, I'm the same way. Like I need to see like each category of food on the plate, but at the same time, like I said before, I have a different experience now than I did five, six, seven years ago where I was home every night. I wasn't running around to driving people to activities. So now I'm really softening. I'm softening on like how many times a week can I have spaciousness in my kitchen where we can create something that has all the different elements and do it slowly. And how can I also um, be really gentle and okay with myself when I'm number one, turning the cooking role over to my partner um, and, you know, not being in charge of what we cook, you know, like we have, which is a little mystery, mystery meal. <laughs> yeah. And, and then also, you know, if we need to do something really fast, we do something really fast and it can be okay. Yeah. And I think it's just that acceptance of, of knowing we're doing our best to feed ourselves and if you can do that in a way that feels like everyone's involved, you know, that's the best way possible and that everyone's involved 
everyone has a little like taste, you know, every, everyone's offering something. It's not like, oh, the parents are like cooking the kitchen and the kids go like, mm, I don't like that, you know? Um, and maybe they don't like that, but it's like, well, what if they were involved? What if they knew like what the different tastes were? What if they knew what's like a great fast dish, right? Like pasta, maybe like some canned beans or like quick meat that you have and put together like lots of herbs and you can have that as a fast bowl that's like nourishing. You know, that's like a lot of creative like future resiliency that you're offering to them to know, okay, if you're hungry, you know, maybe you just eat like toast and sardines from the pantry. But if you have time, you can make this stew or this dish so, and like roll your own tamales or, you know, um, or tortillas and like make tamales. Like all of that is, you know, you're actively like, offering them and that is part of their culture too so I think it's very important to consider yeah like what culture are you passing on you know it's not all about like homework or like achieving success outside of the home it's like how are you raising them to know how to like be self-sustaining in this world yeah and I also something that I love too is the opportunity to create your own family culture that maybe won't look like what your parents did or what you know your ancestral you know three generations did like we have an opportunity here to really listen to ourselves and create something together that becomes something that is passed down in its own way um, so I think, yeah, for me, it's so much about the rooted connection and grounding that comes with who I am and who my ancestors were combined with like a deep sense of love and freedom to listen to my higher self and what is healing for me in this moment and my children and how that carries us forward with like a deep sense of self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what a beautiful gift that is for your family, right? And when they grow up, they'll say, this is our family culture. This is what we did. This is how my mom thought about it. This is like what she did for us. And I think that's what we're hoping is like people will take away is this like resonance of we can always create culture, you know, that's like deeply rooted in something that's like connected to nature and a sense of ourselves. Mm. So beautiful. Roshni, thank you so much for sharing this conversation. It's always awesome to dive deep with you in different ways. And um, so, yes, please, um, you guys are we are Marigold on Instagram. Um, look, look them up, folks, and and look at their ancestral cooking program. Um, we collaborate with different ways um, with Marigold, so they're also connected to us. Roshni is a, a teacher in our program as well on ancestral cooking and grief and trauma and ritual and healing around that. Um, thank you, Roshni. This was amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. While you were talking, I was thinking of, um, uh, is it a Minnesota hot dish? Wait, is oh, that got it. Yes. Hot dish. It's a thing. <laughs> I'm obsessed with hot dish and I've been working on a postpartum hot dish recipe 
when I perfect it, I'll have to send it over. Oh you know? my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Like really digestible because I think a regular hot dish may not be like maybe hard to digest depending on someone's agni, but this one is more digestible version. Mostly like warming spices, but still got tater tots. I, I just love it. I'm obsessed. <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. You know, and hot dish is a very broad term. So I feel like there's a lot of creative freedom there. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the first one that has like fennel seeds and ginger, but it's okay. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait to try it. All right. Well, thank you so much. And folks, all the links you need are in the show notes and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. The Sacred Window Podcast is brought to you by the Center for Sacred Window Studies. You can visit us to find out more about our online training and mentoring programs, plus resources and products for and about the sacred postpartum window at www.sacredwindowstudies.com. And our music is written and performed by Sarah Emmett. You can hear more of Sarah's music by visiting www.sarahemmett.bandcamp.com.